Okay, so last week we left off um, when at kind of in a in a discussion about church history, we ended, and I we didn't make it near as far as I thought we would last week, um, and we actually ended at a pretty good spot because had we have tried to cover what we um, what we're going to be covering today last week, we would have had to skip over a great deal uh, of content. Um, and I think we would have missed out on some of the bigger uh, some of the bigger events in church history that brings us today. Wow, there's a lot of people in here this morning. <laughs> um, so if you've got that handout, it's two-sided. It's two-sided. Um, and I, there may be inaccuracies. Just a fact check, please. It was it was well after midnight last night that <laughs> this thing got completed. So you can tell that as I had to flip over to the back, and then the back is like. <laughs> I did. I put the Declaration of Independence. Well, here as you're kind of looking that over, I'm glad that you noticed that. I'm glad that you noticed that. One of the things that I want us to pay attention to, so there's a big zero there in the middle. That's kind of the that's kind of the pivotal point, uh, or begins the pivotal kind of a pivotal time in uh, all of human history. So, like prior to that, you you're rewinding back into the into the BCs, and then after that, you're pushing forward into the ADs. And one of the things, one one, it's one of the reasons that I put that that uh, Declaration of Independence on there, kind of a key moment, kind of a key moment in our history as, as Americans here. Um, but one of the things that I want you to notice is if we, if you kind of look at this whole thing, look at how small a span of time, and again, this is kind of relative, right? Like my artistic abilities are not good, I'll admit that. But one of the things that I want us to take note of is that is that if if the scale were accurate and you're looking at the time from Christ to us, um, the, and I've got me on there as well. Did you <laughs> yesterday was yeah. Yesterday was my birthday, so I was in the mood, man. So I threw me down on there. Um, <laughs> For relative histories, you know, like for you to be able to... <laughs> now take these, keep these forever, no? <laughs> Energy drink is what it was. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, Red Bull. Um, so some of the, the, one of the things that I want you to take away, and I wish I could unfold it out so that it kind of all laid out, is the little, the, really the short amount of time that, that what we would consider to be like significant modern history actually takes up in this whole thing. And there's another thing that I want us to take, take note of as well. And it's kind of one of the reasons that I, that I included this in there. Y'all know that y'all are Protestants, right? Like when I say this, like y'all know that the the Baptist Church is a Protestant, is part of the Protestant Church, and y'all kind of, I think, probably it, maybe not know all the details, but you kind of get that at some point in the past there was a significant event that the Protestants kind of uh, made a protest, if you will, against the Catholic Church of the day, and that and that by and large. Um, a lot of the significant issues that were brought out by the reformers during the Protestant Reformation, we as Protestants 
continue in those understandings while the Catholic Church continues in what we would consider to be um, misunderstandings. And so we kind of get that, I think, right? So, so do we understand how big a deal it is that we, if you were to look at all of church history, and this is why I put this on there, so that you can kind of see the relative age. So you've got on that paper zero. Look at this huge amount of time that makes up church history. And then kind of there towards the end of the that first page, you start seeing the Renaissance taking place. And then uh, during that time period, the Protestant Reformation takes place. And then we are kind of uh, following along that stream of thought. Um, one of the things that I want us to consider is, it, because this is going to be an important point that I make all along the way when we consider um, history and when we start looking back um, throughout history to kind of examine doctrines and, and how doctrines are held, one of the things that I'm going to say is that the weight of church history is important, especially when we consider our understanding of certain uh, doctrines and things like that. <clears throat> so one of the things that I want us to take here is that you are the out liar right do you understand do you understand that 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 we are not when when you look at the bulk of christendom the protestants are not the majority right so you so and and then when you get into there and you break up into the the various protestant um, denominations in there you kind of start segmenting off a little bit more but on the whole like if you look at like that number that we quote the two billion or something like that uh, believers in the world the large majority of that is not protestant right like that's that's so so one of the things that i want you to be thinking about is why are you here why, and, and, and this is why I want us to consider the history of it. And this is also why I think that some of these ideas that we're thinking about as far as where should we be looking for the truth is important. Because this is one of those things. If you find yourself diverging from what a large portion of the church throughout history was holding to, then you had better have a bedrock rock solid understanding of why you differ right so this is why we're going to be spending the effort that we're going to be spending today kind of digging into that so last week and we'll kind of i'll let you you can take these these kind of away they're going to be kind of some of these things that we're going to mention along the way um throughout the class today, but I wanted you to have this so that you could kind of get a timeline as we're reading through, because there's going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of reading today to try to, to try to cover all of these things that took place, um, that essentially birthed the Protestant church, um, in, uh, in the, uh, in the, the 16th century. Um, <coughs> yeah, questions, yes, absolutely. Um, you could, yeah, so like, and there's, there's different, so like today, like you'll see like BCE, which is like before common era. So like, there's different, like, the probably, like, BCE is probably, I guess, the, the more commonly used now. And then, um, what is it, ACE? Is it after the common era or CE or common, yeah, common era? Yeah, so they're the same. It's essentially like a like a, 
an abstracting away from a particular event that actually was the event that triggered all of these things, right? But yes, you could think of like, so like BC would be before Christ, and AD doesn't stand for after death. I can't, it's like, I'd have to look, say it again? Anno Domini, yeah. So it's like, so this is like from the, it's not after death, it's like birth of kind of thing. But there's a, like if you were to look, there's kind of a four year window where it's like it could be. Zero could fall into any of these particular type of things. So I, I kind of left that out of this and just kind of think of that zero as kind of, there's, there's a small window of time that that could fall in. Before that, like all of this hinges on Christ himself and the life of Christ, right? So, so, so all of the timing there, like there may be here or there a year or two or three or four that, that might be shifted left or right on the, the timeline there. But yes, and when you're going backwards, you're re, you're rewinding. So from zero, you would count backwards. Um, that first marking would be 100 BC, 200, 300. Um, at the time of Christ. So like coming of Christ, yes, yes. So sometime around there um, is where we would start the common era or the A.D. Um, so yeah, so all of those things you can kind of, um, so when we're talking about 170 A.D., like that's, yeah, all of that's based off the coming of Christ and um, <clears throat> the, the kind of the, the timing there was built off of, off of that. Good question. Um, so... All of this that we're looking at, um, and up at the top on that, you'll see too, I've got kind of bridged off these ideas like the early church, um, the Middle Ages, or the like the established church, and then the modern era, if you flip over to the other side. So like kind of trying to broadly like classify these particular, these particular things. Um, so kind of, I want you to, to keep this timeline in your mind, and there's going to be a couple of things that we're going to mention along the way, a couple of significant, significant events. Excuse me. Um, I actually we, we're rewinding back to to pre um, to pre coming of Christ in this particular discussion here because um, in the third century, beginning in the third century, there was a pretty significant um, uh, event or set of events that started taking place that that's going to play um, an important role. Um, several centuries in the future. Um, so I want us to see how history ties together to lead to certain particular things that have taken place. And this is why it's important that we kind of, that we invest in a, in a strong understanding of history itself as well as um, church history specifically, especially where we stand as, as uh, Protestants and because we need to, we need to have a good understanding of um, where it is that we come from and why it is, right? Why it is that we uh, hold the the particular beliefs that we hold. All of this, I want us to get this, all of this revolves around our understanding of Scripture, right? The books that are in Scripture, the way that we approach Scripture itself, um, what we think of Scripture, what we understand of Scripture, and we're going to kind of explore a little bit uh, today on that. So um, last week we kind of wrapped up some of the New Testament, some of the thoughts on the New Testament. And one of the things that I wanted us um, to take away from last week's discussion in regards to the New Testament, there's no difference apart from translate. We're, and we're going to talk about this apart from like where do you translate from to get the New Testament? Like which, and that's going to be some of these things that we're going to look at. Um, 
kind of as we go as we go forward with this discussion. But but as far as the books that belong in the New Testament, we don't differ in our understanding from the Catholic Church. The Protestant Church and the Catholic Church agree on the canon of the New Testament. It is the Old Testament where we would disagree on the canon, and we're going to dig into why. And then also in kind of the some of the philosophies that would revolve around what text should be used when doing translation um, is going to cause some of the New, De- New Testament differences that we see uh, and that arise kind of during the time of um, the Reformers and uh, that we kind of continue in that today. So, um, <clears throat> beginning in the 3rd century before Christ, uh, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible was undertaken. Okay, this is because um, kind of leading into the time of Christ, um, the Greek-speaking, uh, Greek, Greek, the Greek language rose in popularity. Um, many of the Jews were uh, speaking uh, speaking Greek during that time. So, uh, because the the, Bible, the Hebrew Bible was not in Greek, there was a need to translate it into Greek. So there was an effort that was undertaken uh, to translate the scriptures into kind of the language of the day. This became known as the Septuagint, Septuagint um, and it was kind of the, it, it began to be written, and probably the large bulk of it in the 3rd century. I think there's kind of some additions that were uh, kind of plugged in along the way just simply because the, the effort is a pretty major undertaking to do a translation uh, into another language. So, uh, But beginning in the 3rd century, this effort was undertaken. This became probably the why, the this probably for the for the Jews during Jesus' day was probably the most widespread uh, translation in use. We actually find that the New Testament authors are familiar with the Septuagint. When we look at um, the quotations that were made by the New Testament uh, authors, we find them quoting from the Septuagint. An interesting thing to note here is that though they quote from the Septuagint, they never quote from the apocryphal, the apocryphal writings. Um, this is an important thing to note because kind of... Uh, uh, one way that you could start forming canon, especially considering the apostles and Jesus and Jesus kind of uh, speaking of the Holy Spirit and bringing into remembrance for them and the writing of Scripture itself um, and their quotations of is, is when they would quote, you could essentially see that as them giving uh, weight towards or credence towards the trustworthiness of a particular text that they quoted from. So the fact that they quote from... Um, the Septuagint would give weight to the ability to use it. The fact that they never quote from the apocryphal writings would would lead us to a particular understanding that they must have had as they were using that book themselves that I believe was lost in the, and that the Protestants would believe was lost at, at some point to where um, the, the uh, apostles and Jesus are quoting from this book, but they're not quoting as Scripture from the, uh, from the apocryphal writings which were included in this book. some point along the line, the church started believing that those apocryphal writings were Scripture and actually started basing doctrine off of that. So we find in uh, AD 170, um, the earliest list of the books of the Old Testament that the church drew up included all of the books of the Hebrew scriptures except uh, Esther, um, and it did not include any of the apocryphal writings. 
Um, this is where you would find um, in that on that timeline 170 AD. Um, kind of if you wanted to go back and kind of look at this and do some fact checking on this, and I would recommend that um, a letter from. Melito, the bishop of Sardis, uh, to his friend Onesimus, it was it was preserved in Asubius in his ecclesiastical history. Um, like I said, this this uh, document contains um, all of the Hebrew, um, all of, like a, a, a listing of the Hebrew uh, scripture minus Esther. It does not include as scripture uh, any of the apocryphal writings. So beginning in the second century after Christ, so so um, we've got the Septuagint about uh, three centuries, beginning three centuries prior to Christ. Now we're kind of fast forwarding a little bit in time um, to uh, the second century after Christ. A Latin translation of the entire Bible was undertaken. So what I want us to see is that is that the flow of history itself and certain languages coming and going have certain effects on the church and what's taking place in the church. So so we we are not exempt from history and. And that's one of the reasons that it's important for us to kind of uh, examine and explore how things ebb and flow in the in the tides of history. So beginning in the second century after Christ, right? A Latin translation. So we've got the Greek translation, we've got the Hebrew. Um, so a Latin translation of the entire Bible was undertaking was undertaken. This reflects a shift um, from Greek to Latin as the universal language of the Roman Empire. The version of the Old Testament originally translated was the Septuagint, uh, not the Hebrew Bible, right? So the Septuagint is a translation from the Hebrew Bible. So in the second century after Christ, when this effort was undertaken to translate <clears throat> to translate uh, into into Latin itself, um, the original scripture was not used, but a translation that was made from that original scripture. I want us to pause and consider that for a moment, right? Do we understand what that might mean, or what could happen if that type of thing were to be done? Do we understand the significance of why I would even bring that point up, right? Yes, yes. So uh, there's there's a lot of room for error there. Let's imagine that I know Spanish and I'm going to write a translation from English into Spanish. So I have a particular text that I want to translate from English into Spanish. And I do that, right? Now... Because the differences in languages, there are going to be these, there are going to be these areas where there's going to be questions about, well, what words should I use there? And there may be multiple words that I could use there, but I'm going to select a certain word so that my readers can have something to go by, right? So I do that. And now, sometime later, after me, someone says, I want to take that Spanish text and I want to translate that into German, right? What would happen on any of those places where I had to make a decision because there were a couple of things that I could have written down from the original English, but I wrote one thing down in Spanish. And now the German, the person who's translating it from Spanish to German following along after me sees that particular word, and when they encounter that particular word, there may be a couple of words that they could use, right? 
So now they're translating from a place where I had to pick a particular word. Now they're having to take that particular word. Maybe they don't get the nuance of what was going on when I, when I selected that word. So now there's another level of ambiguity potentially in that. What would have been the better option for that person? To go back to the original English... And to translate from the English because there would be less room for error than using a work that was separated in, in effort and in, and in time, right? Do we, do we understand that? So that's what took place, right? That's what took place is instead of going back to the original Hebrew, what instead was done is a translation was used as the as the place from which they started to build a third translation, right? That's what's taking place here. So, second century, um, at this point in time, um, the Septuagint was was kind of widespread in widespread use. Um, so, when they went to translate into uh, Latin um, from Greek, they used the Septuagint, um, and I'm going to probably butcher that word as I as I say it. Both ways, just in case I get one way wrong. Um, so they're doing this work. They're translating. This becomes um, this is kind of a significant point um, in in history. Here we're going to see uh, if you look at that timeline. Jerome um, there in 382 um, is commissioned to do this to do this effort. Um, so, yes. So we're assuming that Jerome was highly educated and able to read the Hebrew. Yes. So there were other reasons why he chose to use the Septuagint to, yes. to translate instead of going back. Yeah. So, so, and that's what we're what we're gonna what we're gonna see is that um, as Jerome was was so Jerome in, in 382 was commissioned by the Bishop of Rome to t- to to embark on this great effort. We need a new translation for the language of the day. You can do this effort. And, and he's commissioned to, to do it. So as he's doing this, he has different he has different options at his disposal, right? So like he he can do from both, and 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 he actually this kind of this effort begins by going back, right? So he's, so he he thinks in the same way that I'm thinking here, in the same way that we're all thinking that going back to the original is kind of a key uh, a key thing to do here. And even in some of his like some of the things that we find in 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 his works, like some of the, the quotes that you can find um, him making, he actually, as he starts this, um, as he starts this effort, he, he realizes this. So, Jerome realizes that a proper translation required a Hebrew original and not the Greek Septuagint. So, this is kind of something that he's, that he's thinking, that he's considering. Um, he actually commented as, uh, kind of in, in, in part as he's, as he's doing this, this is kind of a, a a quote from from him here. Um, this is in the in the uh, preface to uh, some of the work, some of the early work that he had done. This is something that he had said. Uh, this preface is to the script. Um, this preface to the scriptures may serve as a general introduction to all the books which we translate from Hebrew to Latin so that we may be assured that what is not found in our list must be placed among the apocryphal writings. Um, so he's thinking in this way, right? He's thinking in this way. There's another point, in, uh, there's another person that I've got listed on here, and I actually listed his death because it was, that way the, the bullet points, would, or the 
like the timeline wouldn't be so crammed in. But contemporaneous to Jerome, who's doing this translation, there's also another significant figure in church history. Um, so you would think that if you were the guy that's translating Scripture itself, that the work that you did would carry a great weight throughout history. Right? Now what's crazy, in fact, is that there was a guy contemporaneous to him, a.k.a. lived during the same time as him, who was writing to him as he's doing this, urging him to go and use the Septuagint, the Greek. Um, and and this, so this guy's name is Augustine. He's Augustine of Hippo. The view that, that Augustine held. Now, this is interesting because the same type of understanding we find, we find the same type of understanding of um, Scripture that, that that he held, we actually find reemerge in modern time and what, what you would see is the King James onlyism um, debate, right? Where like those who would hold to a King James onlyism would say that God's hand in the translation of the text into English was equal with his hand in the writing of the original text. And, and they would they would stake the claim that that the King James is the official from God translation, right? So so uh, Augustine held a, 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 the same type of view, except he held that view with the Septuagint, right? So that he would say that n- n- that that you should not concern yourself over any differences that you might find between the Hebrew and between the Greek. Right? Because what he would say is that the translation itself was overseen by the hand of God in such a way as that it was as trustworthy as the original writing itself. Now, is that called Textus Receptus? Is that what that is? Like, that Textus Received directly? Yes. Yes. So, like, like yeah. Reception. Yes. So, well, that's the, yeah, that's kind of the idea behind it. Is, is the, and, and this follows through, like, and, like this, it's, I think it's important for us to get this that these type of ideas don't necessarily die; they morph. That's why I point out that the King James onlyists would hold that same type of view that Augustine held, and they might would even quote Augustine in in supporting that. Right? The, in, in the, the King James version comes from is translated from the Vulgate, right? Which is translated from. Yes. 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 So a lot of that. Yeah. So a lot of that. Like, and and this is one. And I don't know if y'all remember this, but maybe a decade or two ago, there was a whole lot of issues that arose around the kind of the like the King James onlyest view of things, right? Like, like that's in modern recent history that that type of that that type of thing has come about. So, and this is why, like, one of the reasons that I point this out, right? One of the reasons that I point this out is the question rests on you, right? Like, I want you to consider this question. Like, when we discover what Scripture is, like, in what is the appropriate manner or what is the appropriate mechanism by which we do this, right? Now, you are in a church, right, being the Protestant church, whose stream throughout history has said this, that you go back to the original text, right? 
Like that's where you, that's where you, if you're here today and you're a member of a Protestant church, if you're a member of the Mount Carmel, like that's the stream where you find yourself landing in history. And I want you to ask yourself the question, and I think that we should, I think that it's appropriate. Are we answering the question properly? Like, is going back to the original text the appropriate mechanism by which you would find the truth of what Scripture is? Right? Or is it appropriate? Do you believe that God not only pinned through the author's hand, but had a very special hand in the translation itself? Right? That's kind of part of the question that we should be considering here. And that's the question that the reformers were considering as well. So kind of so so Augustine has this particular view and he is very influential, right? Like Augustine's very influential and he's writing to Jerome and he's like, You should include you should include the Greek. You should include the Greek. And Jerome does. So what so so we find this quotation right here from him that says that you shouldn't include anything that's part of the Apocrypha, but what we find out is that as he goes through this effort of, okay, I'll translate it for you. I'll do the translation, I'll do the translation, I'll do the translation, is that the view that those were Scripture stuck. Right? So where he in his work originally would have said, the Apocrypha of the Old should not be held in the same regard. And we would say that same thing today. And part of the, part of the support with, for that will be is that the Jews never held that. Why at some point in church history did the church begin believing that when where we come from, right, did not believe that? Why did, why, why was there this morphing of belief? And that's history, right? That's influencers throughout history. And Augustine was one of the major influencers there towards this view that those apocryphal texts should be included. They were included. And then here's the, th- here's the portion that I want you to look at. So from that point in time, like if you were to just look at from the point in time of Augustine's death, around 430 A.D., and you just go forward through the centuries, this would be like the Middle Ages, right? Century, I want you to look at that piece of paper and I want you to realize that when you flip over to the back, the Reformation has had less time to take hold than the, than the Middle Ages were by like a bunch, right? So do y'all get that what, that what happened in the day and age of Jerome and Augustine had more time to take root than all of the time from the Reformation to now, right? So those roots grew deep. Those roots grew deep. And then another significant event happened in history. And this would be like the Renaissance, right? And during the Renaissance, certain ideas started coming about. Certain ways of thinking started coming about. Like, part of, part of the big, like, in, like, it's so crazy how history kind of converged in this moment, right? So like, the, like, during the during the Renaissance, there was like a it was almost like a rediscovery. Like people started people started wanting to to explore what like the ancients thought. Like like there was this like there was a, a significant focus placed on reason and thought itself, and like being able to think rightly. Like when we think of the Renaissance, we think of art for the most part, 
right? But there was a huge, like there was a huge movement of just being able to think and reason well that bubbled up in the Renaissance. And as part of that, the reformers were caught up in that as well. So the reformers were thinking, like they're, they're finding themselves in this particular culture where the culture is like trying to go back and examine these older things and the church starts exploring these questions anew. This question that Jerome would have pointed out here that you shouldn't have the the uh, the the uh, apocrypha in there. These are questions that that centuries later, like, and when I think about this, how did it take centuries for it to happen, right? How did it take centuries for it to happen? And I think there's a couple of different things that I would point out. One is that literacy was probably not super high during the Middle Ages, and something happened that the reformers took advantage of. So, so we start getting the ability to produce documents more and more readily, to disperse information more and more widely. Like, like this is what's happening during this Renaissance period, right? And the and and the reformers start pinning down their ideas and start dispersing their ideas and they start putting these things down. Like probably the pivotal moment that, that probably if you were to look most historians would kind of uh, tie to this is when the this is when the Protestant Reformation kind of kicked off is Martin's Martin Luther's um, ninety five theses being uh, being sent to the Archbishop of Mainz. Um, this was in the sixteenth century, this was around fifteen seventeen AD this was the beginning of uh, the Protestant Reformation. So all of these cultural effects started taking hold. The church started asking these questions anew. They started looking and saying, well, and not the whole church, but the reformers, started asking these questions. Where should we be looking when we're, when we're asking these questions? Should be, we be looking to translations of translations? Or should we be trying to go back to the original sources? Right? And as they started asking these questions, right, like there's the the church is well established, like there's there's persecution that comes on the, the like there's essentially like wars that break out over this stuff, right? Like this becomes this becomes a huge, huge deal that I would I would go so far as to say has influenced even the 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 Protestant the reason that Protestant that Protestantism is as 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 big as it is in the U.S. Um, I would say that much of that even came from a lot of these pressures that happened uh, during the time of the reformers and kind of um, the things that kind of spooled out of that. Um, so um, so we find that during the Reformation, these kind of questions were being asked. Um, so. Uh, there were kind of two two developments that that probably um, that probably uh, triggered this. The one was the Renaissance, or this kind of this idea of going back to the original sources. Another one was the Roman Catholic Church um, started um, getting bigger than itself. I guess big headed might be another way of saying it. Um, and they started um, they started essentially holding that the authority that the church had was greater than the authority of Scripture itself. This development uh, led to the claim that the Roman Catholic Church pos- possessed the authority to determine the canon of Scripture. Um, so the reformers were were uh, were clearly uh, against against that. Um, so instead of and and a lot of differences kind of grew out of this as well. Um, one of the questions that arose was: Should the church base its belief on the pra- 
base its belief, beliefs and practices from the New Testament on the poorly translated Latin Vulgate, that's that one that we just mentioned, or should it appeal uh, to the original Greek for the New Testament, right? So what had happened as well, so now we've got translation of a translation that, that we've got going on for the, uh, for the Old Testament, but the New Testament was translated into Latin as well. And in that, it, what the Reformers would, would say is that there wasn't really a good job done. And now we've got centuries and centuries that have passed by since this particular effort took place. And they're asking themselves, should we look at the original Greek or should we look at the translation of the Latin Vulgate when we're trying to explore what should be church doctrine? So a lot of, uh, a lot of that uh, is kind of what brought the Reformation to a head. Um, <clears throat> so, um, so during the Reformation, uh, the reformers uh, were influenced by uh, by kind of the tides of their culture. They followed these developments and responded to these questions in the following way. Uh, first, the church's Old Testament, they said, should be based on the shorter Hebrew Bible, not the Septuagint with its additional apocryphal writings. This decision was based on the fact that the Jewish scriptures with its 22 or 24 books uh, had been the word of God used by Jesus and the disciples. They would say, look at what they quote. That would kind of be one, one response to that. They don't quote from the, uh, from the apocryphal writings themselves. Uh, thus, and the shorter version uh, must be considered the Bible of the church. Also, some of the apocryphal writings included incorrect historical and, and or chronological information. Right? There's falsehood in them. Many of them had not been considered sound by the early church. That can, that can be seen uh, by kind of a, a historical examination. Thus, the Reformers dismissed the Apocrypha from the canon of the Old Testament. Um, the Reformers urged that just as the church's Old Testament should be based on the Hebrew Bible, so its New Testament should be based on the original Greek, where the church's beliefs and practice Beliefs and practices were based on the poorly translated Latin Vulgate. They must be modified or abolished. Um, and that's kind of what what was occurring and what was taking place as Martin Luther's kind of putting together his uh, his 95 Theses, which which sparked the uh, Protestant Reformation itself. Um, so the formal principle of the Pro- of Protestant Protestantism um, is sola scriptura. Um, scripture alone um, among other things this meant that the holy biblical scripture because it is the word of God has standing and credibility enough in and of itself Uh, John Calvin quoting Paul um, in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 um, affirmed that the church is and this is kind of an amalgamation of something he said and uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 2 verse 20 he, uh, he affirmed that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets thus scripture preceded the church it came before the church and it cannot owe its existence to church authority so what he was saying there and what the reformers were saying there is the church cannot say what scripture is because scripture preceded the church itself so the church recognized and affirmed the divinely inspired writings that God intended for placement in the canon, but it did not create or determine the canon of Scripture. And it was after the Protestant Reformation, um, I want to say it's the Council of Trent, in which the Roman Catholics made uh, kind of a firm 
um, declaration, and in that declaration, um, they essentially said that they get to pick what Scripture is. Um, and the Protestants, of course, would uh, be against that. So uh, the Protestant church, that's us, embraced 66 books um, in canonical Scripture as canonical Scripture and reject the Apocrypha. Um, and so, so that's kind of the age of the reformers. Um, from the reformers to now, um, you consider that the modern era. There have been some some developments or some historical effects that affect us as well, kind of in the in the modern era. One of those is historical criticism. So, and and y'all know this very well. Like in the culture that we find ourselves in today. The fact that you could trust anything historical seems foreign to most who are who are not already accepting of these things. So, like, this is why if you were to like go and do what we're doing here amongst like secular body, they're going to be like, you can't trust anything from history. None of it's trustworthy, right? Like, they throw the baby out with the bathwater type thing. Like, you'll find foolish foolish people saying, well, Jesus didn't even exist, and. And that kind of craziness, because I can't trust anything in history, um, you know. And, and and so those are things that kind of this hyper criticism of all things historic, um, and a a kind of um, false belief that science can answer all questions because science can't even like you can't use science to the scientific method to to prove the scientific method. So like. Even like there's just been a whole lot of craziness that's kind of uh, come about in the modern era where this there's like this almost like cynicism um, when it comes to to knowledge itself um, and there's been rebuttals uh, in 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 this so the church doesn't doesn't ever go down um, without swinging kind of thing um, so we find that that as these particular like the the critics have come, the churches responded. Um, so, for example, B.B. Uh, B. B. Warfield um, re- uh, rehearsed the common Protestant view of the historical development by which the church recognized certain writings as being canonical. In particular, he affirmed that uh, in every case, the principle on which a book is accepted or doubts against it laid aside was the historical tradition of uh, uh, of a uh, Apostolicity. Wow. That's apostolic authority. That we kind of talked about that a couple of uh, weeks uh, weeks back. Um, he did express a couple of n- kind of uh, new new things. Yet yeah, Warfield expressed a novel notion of apostolic authority uh, that it should be understood to refer to the writings of the New Testament canonical books by the apostles. Um, that it should not be understood to refer to the writings of the New Testament canonical books by the apostles, but instead to the determination of the exact canon of Scripture by the apostles themselves. So that's where the idea comes in that, well, what's New Testament? Either the apostles wrote or the apostles approved of it. We talked about that a couple of weeks back. That's, uh, that's kind of where that, um, that evolution of that thought came from. And then also as well as that, um, and this probably fits closer to the view that the way that I would tend to approach uh, this question myself um, the uh, and this particular this particular model is kind of known as the salvation historical approach um, uh, Herman uh, Ritter Ritterboss was the one that's probably I guess credited with this particular 
um, this particular thought, and here's how here's how you can kind of uh, think of it. So he began his discussion with the presupposition of faith in Jesus. So he said Jesus existed, Jesus rose from the dead. That's kind of the thought there, and his delegation of authority to the apostles, the foundation of his church, the authority of God is in no way limited. He says to his mighty works in Jesus Christ, but it also extends to their proclamation in the words and writings of those who have been especially appointed uh, as the authorized bearers and instruments of divine revelation, the written tradition established by the apostles in analogy with the writings of the Old Testament, thereby acquires the significance of being the foundation and standard of the future of the church. From this presupposition, and this is a direct quote from that book that I told you all about, from this presupposition of Christological and apostolic authority, flows the principle of Christological and apostolic priority in discussions of the canon. Jesus Christ authorized the apostles to be his witnesses and to write the authoritative foundational documents on which the church was founded. Thus, the canon in its redemptive historical sense is not the product of the church. Rather, the church itself is the product of the canon. A second key principle that that flows from this presupposition is that the canon is closed aka there are no new books that are coming and we should not be expecting new books uh, to be added to scripture so to summarize um, to kind of summarize all this um, the protestant church with its roots in the reformation and taking its cues from the early church embraces a canon of 39 old testament writings that do not include the apocrypha and 27 new testament writings um, next week, um, if you have any questions, and kind of as we, we probably don't have time today, um, but if you have any questions, yeah, we definitely don't have time today, um, please ask them. Um, we'll spend some time next week in, on any places where people might have um, questions here, kind of before we